Have you ever been reading your Bible? You know, you get to a story and you're reading it, and as you're reading it, you just find yourself getting more and more and more confused, right? Like you kind of start and then you get going, you're like, wait, what the heck is happening? Is this for real? Uh, That happened to me actually just a few weeks ago when I was reading a story about Jesus. And this is a story that happens right after his triumphal into, into Jerusalem. In fact, it's the next day after his triumphal entry. And it's a weird story. It's really strange. In fact, I don't really need to set it up because when I read it, you'll see how strange it is. This is what happened. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Figs make a fruit. Fig trees make a fruit called figs, right? And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And this is where things get weird. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Fast forward five verses. It's the next morning, the next day. And we read this. As they passed by in the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to the root. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. What? What I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what did the fig tree do? Why did he kill the fig tree? Honestly, my first thought was, is Jesus hangry? Right? I I don't know why. That's where I went. In fact, I thought of this commercial. Let's watch it. We'll see what. So you guys grew up together? Yes, since third grade. What are you looking at? I'm not looking at it. We're not good enough for you. You look for something else? No, I just, I don't know. What are you, big supermodels? Jesus. Supermodels. What do you model, gloves? What are you doing? A girl's totally into me. Right? Eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get a little angry when you're hungry. Better? Better. So, ladies. So, losers. Stacy, relax. I'm sorry. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Uh, I love those Snickers commercials. You know, here's the deal. I'm different when I'm hungry. I get hangry. That's, that's just a fact, right? But is Jesus different when Jesus is hungry? Is that, what, is that what's happening here? Well, of course, I think the answer is no. Jesus isn't hangry, but I do think that my initial intuition was correct. He wasn't hangry. He was, however, angry. He was angry about something very, very serious. Of course, the question for us in this weird story about the fig tree is what is he so angry about? And to understand this, we're actually going to have to understand how Mark structures this story. So put on your English hats with me. I was an English major. We're going to dork out for 30 seconds. Don't go on a vacation. This is fun. All right, so here's what he does. Mark structures it into three different parts. See, I'm going to give you visuals. I'm helping you out here, all right? He structures the story into three different parts, right? Verses 12 to 14, 15 to 19, 20 to 21. And then on both ends, let's go to the next slide. We have these weird fig tree stories, right? Jesus curses a fig tree, and then the fig tree dies. But then there's something that happens in between, in the middle, and it's actually another kind of un-Jesus-like Jesus story, right? It's one you've probably heard before. It's where Jesus goes into the temple, uh, and he turns over tables. Jesus is the guy who heals. He brings peace. But in this passage, he's destroying things. He's turning over tables. But here's what Mark wants us to do. That inside story about the temple, it interprets the outside stories. It helps us understand what the outside stories mean and the other way around. The fig tree story helps us understand what's happening in this temple 
story. So we've got a little story sandwich for us tonight. That's what we're going to do. Um, thank you for the three of you who laughed at that. The rest of you are on a vacation on your phone checking the election results. I know what's going on. Uh, no, so to understand this victory story, we actually have to think about what's happening on this inside story. So I'm going to read what happens. It's another kind of strange story, but it's an interesting one. Verse 15, and so am they, the disciples and Jesus, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Here's what's happening. It's a temple, right? And so people are making sacrifices at the temple. And so you could buy animals to go sacrifice there. And Jesus comes in, and he's turning over the tables. He's throwing people out. Um, and it keeps going on. It says he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I mean, he literally shuts the place down. And he's teaching. He's saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes, these are kind of the political power players of the day. They heard it. They were way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished and amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, so yet again, what, what's happening here? Maybe it's a little bit obvious, but in the simplest terms, yet again, Jesus is angry. He's angry about something, and his actions show us a little bit about what he's angry about. The temple is malfunctioning. There's a problem with the temple. Share a little story. A few years back, uh, when I was in college, actually, my senior year, uh, a, a few buddies of mine, we decided to spend uh, spring break going on a backpacking trip to Voyagers National Park. You can't really see it. It's a really pretty place. It's in the boundary waters of northern Minnesota. You've probably never heard of it, but it's awesome. So we're going on a backpacking trip there, and we're on the drive up. And as we're driving, the car starts to malfunction. Starts to have problems. And then the thing just stops smack in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. So we call a tow truck, and it takes us to Mason City. Has any of you been to Mason City, Iowa? I'm sorry, Raina. It's, a, it's an awful place. Uh, <laughs> I knew Raina was going to raise her hand. She's like the one person from Iowa here. Um, no, it's, it's a small little dinky town. Um, they took us to the Ford dealership. We get there. They bring in the car. We're ready to get back on the road, and they come out, and they say, hey, your transmission has gone out. Like, okay, well, how long is it going to take you to repair it? I'm not a car guy, but how long is it going to take you to repair it? And he goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is beyond repair. This isn't a repair thing. It, it needs to be thrown away. It needs to be replaced, right? It's going to take us a day to replace it. I had to sleep under a picnic table last night. That's a different story. The point of this story, that's true, the point of this story, is that when things are malfunctioning, there's usually only two ways you can go, right? You can repair it, right? Some things can be repaired, but some things are beyond repair. They just need to be thrown out. They need to be totally replaced. And that's the question that Mark is trying to get us to ask just right now. He's saying, is Jesus, is he coming into the temple that's malfunctioning, that's got a problem? Is he coming to repair it or throw it out? Is it beyond repair? To answer that question, uh, we're going to have to ask, how was the temple malfunctioning? And the first problem that Jesus points out is this. He says, 
my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. In other words, the temple was to be this kind of international hub for worship. And when Jesus said this, he's actually reaching back into the past, 950 years, to a guy named Solomon. And King Solomon built the first temple. And when he built it, he prayed this prayer. He, he dedicated it with a prayer. And in this prayer, he says something really interesting. He, he prays that the temple, or that through the temple, all peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. He, he's imagining the temple as kind of being this lighthouse in the darkness, and it's shining light out there. And it's calling all of the foreign nations into God's harbor to know who he is, right? And the prophet Isaiah, about 200 years later, he takes his prayer one step further even. And he prophesies about a future reality, a future day, when God would bring the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, so the people who convert to, to the Lord, the day when he'll bring them to his holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called what? A house of prayer for all people. That was the goal of the temple. It was to be this place of including and welcoming and drawing in people from different nations, people who weren't Jews. But Jesus saw that the temple was malfunctioning. Instead of being a place where people were included and invited in, it became a place where people were excluded, where they were kept out. And to see this, I'm actually going to show you an illustration of the temple. So you can get that up here. Okay, so here's the deal. I have a laser pointer. I'm really excited about this. Uh, that right there, this is cool, right? Uh, that's the temple, okay? That, that little building. And around it is this kind of big fortress barracks area, right? So that's not the temple. It's just the, the, the temple around it. And around that, by the way, this is like uh, five football fields long, just to get an idea of and around that, there's this little low wall. You see that low wall right there? That's not in the temple. It's just outside of it. If you were a foreigner coming to the temple in Jesus' day, you know what? You were not allowed to pass by this little low wall. You weren't allowed to go past it. Let's go to the next slide. This is kind of a close-up image. There's the low wall. This is a model someone built. And here's what they did. The Jews of the day, the leaders, they put up signs on this low wall, and they said, if you are a foreigner, you cross at the risk of your own life. You can't even come to, to the kind of like outside area of the temple. You can't even cross this line. If you cross it, you will die. They put signs up. I, and when I hear that, I can't help but think about our own country and our own history of the segregation signs that we had hanging there. And if you look back at those signs, if you see those pictures, at least for me, when I see them, I mean, they literally make me feel sick to my stomach. They're so wrong. But that was the reality that Jesus saw when he came into the temple. It made him terribly, terribly angry. The temple was supposed to be the place that the nations could come near to God, where they could worship God. But it was the place where they were told, you aren't invited. You need to stay out. And to make it worse, to lead into a place of shelter. One place where the Gentiles could be, they made it into a Walmart. They made it into a place of shelter. So what's all this have to do with us? We see maybe the warning for us in this. You see, the Jews, they wanted to make the temple about them, their own race, their own group. They wanted to make it about them, me, and my friends, right? But isn't that sometimes kind of what we do with our faith? We, we make Christianity about me and my friends. Christianity is about me getting saved. Christianity 
it ends up being this thing that excludes people that aren't my friends, that I don't really want to be around, that I want anymore? Do you do a few questions? Let, let's see if this fits home. Do you, do I, do we choose a Christian group that we're a part on, that we're a part of, based on how entertained it makes me feel? Do we choose what Christian group we're a part of based on how good it makes me feel? Is it about me? Do we decide whether we should include others based on whether or not they have something to offer me? Does that person have something to make me look cooler? Is that person fun for me to be around? Is that person interesting for me? Or do we ever exclude people out of our life? I know we aren't putting a time frame for us. Do we exclude people in our present life? The ignoring says it. Do we exclude people who make me feel uncomfortable? Who don't have anything to offer me or my friends? They're not a part of my group. I mean, I even hear as, as, as we age, I probably said this once. You know, I'm a junior. I'm a senior. I have my own friends. I don't need to add any other people. Do I show up to things? Show up to church, small group, I don't know, based on what's in it for me, right? And so I stop showing up because I don't get anything out of this. It doesn't make me feel the way I want. The people who are there aren't the people that I like. And that was kind of hard to hear because I have the feeling every time that you're personal with those things in your head before. Different question. When's the last time that you personally brought an outsider in? When's the last time that you showed up to an event, not for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of someone else? You showed up thinking, not I'm here for me and what I can get out of this, but I'm here for the sake of others. It's my job to include and welcome others. We can make this even bigger. If someone comes into Veritas, are we a ministry that's known for being about me and my friends and my clique? Are we a ministry that's known for welcoming in outsiders? That doesn't exist. You see that this community that God's brought together, it's one of the only communities on earth that doesn't exist for the sake of itself. It exists for the sake of others. Others of different races, different political persuasions, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Others who may not have anything to offer me or my friends right off the bat. See, God saved you. God saved me, not so that we can be about me and my friends. He saved us for far more than that. Saved us for the sake of others. And the people running the temple, they just didn't get that. They thought, hey, we're here for us, for our friends, for our group. And if you're not one of us, you're not our problem. You can stay out. And Jesus got so about that that he shuts the place down. Don't think that you've got to serve to shut this place. Jesus shows a second way, a second way that the temple was malfunctioning. He quotes Jeremiah 7.11. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he's quoting a passage that isn't actually about robbers, just so we know. Um, It's about the leaders of Israel, and it's how they're acting unjustly towards the people that they were supposed to take care of. They were acting like robbers towards the people that they were supposed to provide for. And in Jesus' day, the leaders of the temple, but they were something kind of similar to this. You see, they were selling animals for sacrifice in the temple, but they were hiking up the prices, and they were taking a cut out for themselves. In other words, they're extorting people, right, uh, as they 
worship. And that small little extortion is just a microcosm of a far bigger problem that had been happening hundreds of years in Israel. Uh, that the power players in Israel, the important people, uh, the people who the temple represented, they were using their powers, their power, not to bring justice and love and blessing, but to enrich themselves. This is a little bit tough for us to understand, but the temple wasn't just a church. It wasn't just a place of worship. The temple was also their capital. That's what the temple was, their White House. It was their Supreme Court. This is right in our heads today, right? That's what the temple was. Like, we see these buildings, and we think the places of power. When you saw the temple, you thought the places of power. And it's not that having power is wrong. Jesus has a lot of power. It's just, here's the question. How do we use the power that we are we going to use it for selfish gain at the expense of others? Are we going to use it to do good? I read a story recently of a guy named Mike Davis. Uh, in the 60s and into the 70s, he, he was a chauffeur, right? Not a big-name guy, but he, he climbed the, the ladder of, of the company. He, was a, he became the CEO of this chauffeur all the way up to being a CEO, and when he became the CEO of this big, powerful oil company, the question was, this guy who knows exactly what it's like to be on the bottom rung, how is he going to use his power? What will he do with his power? Well, let's just read a few memos he sent out to his employees. This is one of my favorites. Some sincerity. Idle conversation and gossip in this office among employees will result in immediate termination. And he writes in all caps, do your jobs and keep your mouth another one. There will be no more birthday celebrations. Birthday or celebrations of any kind within the office are prohibited. This is a business office. If you want to celebrate, do it after office hours on your own time. This is my personal favorite. It says, I swear as an I cuss. I cuss but since I am the owner of the company, that's my privilege. And this privilege is not to be interpreted as the same for any employee. That differentiates me from you. And I want to keep it that way. There will be absolutely no swearing by any employee, male or female, in this office ever. <laughs> you laugh. You used to be in totally serious. He used his real stuff. Um, in every possible way, Mike Davis... He used his power for himself, didn't he? Your birthday doesn't matter. Me getting rich, that's what matters. Rather than using his power to bless people, to bring good things in their lives, to bring mercy and justice, what does he do? He uses it to demean them, to demoralize them, to enrich them. And that's what's happening at the temple, too. The temple was malfunctioning. It was a place where the power brokers of the time, they were serving themselves. They weren't serving other people. It was, a, it was a place of injustice, but it was supposed to be a beacon of justice. And Jesus, did you hear that? He's really, really angry. Did you hear the warning for us in this? I mean, I'll just start with me. I, I, I certainly feel it. And this is where I especially feel it. I, I, these are questions I ask myself after sitting through this. Does my life reflect a genuine concern for justice? Does my time reflect a concern for justice? Or am I too busy with my own things? You know, I go to school too. Uh, I have this job with Veritas. And, and I have a family. Am I too busy with my own things 
to never serve, to never care, to never give? Do I ignore injustice and appeal? I have like no power in talking about what do we do with our power? How are we going to use our power? You're thinking, look, I'm a college student. I have like no power, <laughs> right? We are the bottom rung. But that's not entirely true. All of us, every single one of us has some power. We have power in our relationships. Maybe we're leaders in groups or organizations. And so we can ask ourselves these questions, right? I mean, how do we use power in our relationships? The, the people who we're kind of over, maybe not literally, but in some sense. Do we try to use people for my gain? Or are we the person who gossips to kind of keep ourselves on top, keep ourselves in control? How do we use power when we're the leader of a group? Do we treat people like, hey, you're here for me. You know, the, the power, it just happens when you're here. Or if you're anything like me, a lot of times our misuse or abuse of power, it just happens in the secret places in our heart. People don't always see it, right? It's when I get angry at someone because you just made me look stupid. You made me look bad. It's when I get angry at someone or frustrated because you're not serving my agenda, right? You're not about my goals right now. And so you better believe whenever that person's not in the room and their name comes up, I'm not going to have a lot of great things to say about this is a warning not just for us as individuals, it's also a warning for us as a ministry. See, we're a community that's not supposed to exist just for itself. We're supposed to exist for the sake of justice, for the sake of us, our resources. What community who, as individuals and as small groups, we use our time, we use our resources, what small power we do have to bring God's love, his justice, his mercy into the world in small, microscopic at times, but tangible steps, Right? When Jesus sees the temple in his day, he sees it as an expression, a living expression of injustice. He gets so angry that he Jesus gets angry, right? But as college taught, Jesus is angry. That's good. Here's the question for us. What would Jesus do if he turned the fear of Christianity into something he hates? What would he do if he saw the ways that we turn Christianity into something that's about me and my friends? What would he do if he saw the ways that we quietly or obviously exclude others? What would he say if he saw the ways that we do ignore at times injustice? What would he say with how we use power? What do you think Jesus would do if he looked at your life right now? it's important to go back to the question we asked a while back and we still haven't answered. Did Jesus come to the temple to repair it? Did he just come to replace it? Let's be honest. Want to be okay. Or did he come to throw it out? Replace it? Let's be honest. Let's be real. This takes us back to the story of the cursed fig tree, actually. You see, a fig tree's purpose is to produce fruit, right? But the fig tree was malfunctioning. So do you see the connection between the temple and the fig tree? The fig tree and the temple? You see, the temple is a living, I mean, sorry, the fig tree is a living parable. The temple's like the fig tree, and the fig tree's like the temple, right? The fig tree isn't bearing fruit, and the temple isn't bearing fruit either. It's not what it's supposed to be. And here's the darker part. The fig tree died. Let's be honest. Come to the temple? One chapter later, Jesus says this explicitly. 
He says, do you see all these great buildings? He's pointing to the temple. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And Jesus was right. He predicted the future. A generation later, in AD 70, uh, the Romans, they decimated Jerusalem. They burned down the temple, and then they literally tore it down brick by brick. The question is, what, what does he replace it with? What does he replace it with? Me, after the answer is a strange answer again, because what Jesus says is that he himself, he says, me, after my resurrection, I'm going to replace the temple. I will be the temple. And then he pushes it one step further, and he says, and you guys, my people, my church, you are my body. And so guess what? That means that you are my temple on earth. To quote Paul in Ephesians 2, he says that we together are being built up like little blocks, each one of us, into a temple for God. We, Veritas, the church in the world, we are to be the international hub of worship. We're to be the beacon of justice. So what's that mean for us? I think what it means is that our failures aren't the temple, the ways that we fall short, they're actually really, really serious aren't they? It means the ways that we've served ourselves, we've excluded others, we've ignored injustice, we've misused power, those are dire, life-threatening issues. And God will deconstruct our lives if we continue, or if we choose, I should say, to ignore those problems the way the leaders of the temple did. I know this is a really sobering talk, but I can't escape the fact that Jesus is saying this. We have to hear it. We have to listen to it. We don't have to ignore those problems. It warns us, right? Judgment is never the end of the story. You see, God warns us precisely so that we would turn back to him and be healed. The prophet Hosea put it this way, and I love this passage because I need to hear this all the time because I am a wayward soul. This is what he says. Come. Let us return to the Lord. Why? For he has torn us so that he might heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. That's why he warns us. That's why he convicts us. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up that we may live before him. Isaiah's message is simple. Let's repent. Let's turn back and be healed. It's a really big deal. I'll conclude with this. There's, there's one thing I've left out about the temple. Haven't brought it up. And it's a really big deal because it's one of the most important things that happened to the temple. See, the temple was the place of sacrifice, right? It's the place where God forgave sin. And once he forgave those sins through sacrifice, people could come before him and worship him. And in Jesus' temple, Jesus himself on the cross, he is the sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice. He's the once for all sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, we are forgiven. But his forgiveness isn't just like, hey, you're forgiven, it's all good, don't worry. It's a forgiveness that changes us. It's a forgiveness that heals us. Uh, in Japan, a potter art form called kintsukuroi, I hope I said that right, um, it's when a potter takes a broken, shattered piece of pottery. And he takes all these pieces of the pottery, they're useless and ugly and broken apart, and he makes a lacquer out of gold flakes, actually, is what it's called, gold lacquer. And he uses that lacquer as a kind of glue, and he, piece by piece, with the gold, rebuilds, remakes the piece of pottery. And when you see the pottery, it's really amazing because 
the pottery that was once shattered and broken and ugly is now more beautiful than it ever was to start with because now it's got gold in it. It, it glints. It catches the light. It's an amazing creation. And that's exactly what Jesus' forgiveness does for us. When he sets down, he takes all the broken parts that we confess, that we repent of, and he sets down to work with his forgiveness. And he puts us back together with his forgiveness. And the end product is something that's far more beautiful than what he started off with. He restores us. He changes us. So here's the deal. That old temple, it needed a replacement. But we aren't that old temple. We're the new temple in Christ. We don't need replacement. We need repair. Through repentance, through forgiveness, Jesus not only repairs us, but he empowers us by his spirit to become the kind of people who love others, put others' people first, live for the sake of others, include others, sequestered, use our power to bring God's love, justice, and mercy. The question he puts before us when we see him in the temple turning over the tables is this, will we repent and do something? Jesus, I'll be the first person to confess that as I read through this text, we read through this text, these are all issues I personally have, issues that I have to confess. I want my faith to be about me and my friends. I want to exclude people. I want to ignore injustice. I want to use my power to enrich myself. But you wouldn't leave us, you hit each of us, I pray you would lead us to confess that to you. But you wouldn't leave us wallowing in shame, wallowing in guilt. Instead, you would heal us and glue us back together like that gold lacquer would restore us and make us into the kind of people that bring life back to the people that love others.